0: Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll be reading Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 10. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, in saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word of instruction to our souls, our life, and our church. So, Father, help us see. Help us grasp. Help us embrace what you have revealed through your Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 4 this morning. And thus, help me be a conduit of that. To the glory of Jesus in the church. Amen. I I remember about the age of 20 that the absurdity of life without God just struck me. Go to college. Get a degree. Or learn a trade so that you can have a good job. Because when you're done with work that day, you need a place to go live, have a bed, refrigerator, buy food and put into it so that you'll be rested and fed and strengthened in order to wake up the next day and do it all again. And you do it again and again, week after week, month after month, year after year. Now, you you may be fortunate enough to make above and beyond those daily means so that you can buy a bunch of toys. Play with on the weekend. And 40 years go by, you've raised your family, and you retire, and you play a lot of golf, you travel, you watch TV, you get old, sick, and you die. And there was only made up reasons for existence, purposes there was no real purpose. No wonder atheistic existentialists blow their brains out. they got good brain power. God is dead. There is no God. This has all been a farce. And they're smart enough to know, therefore, there really is no such thing as purpose or meaning to anything there cannot be without a God. And thus it drove them into existentialism. Here's our philosophy. I am. I exist. Let's make the best out of it today. And they know, well, we're only playing games, really. We're pretending there's truths or meaning and purpose, and many of them can't take it anymore and end it. Because the human being is designed to long for purpose. For meaning. And this passage this morning is about the purpose-driven life. It is about the meaning for your existence. Have you come to Jesus? What that means is that Jesus is He's sovereignly invaded your life with the greatest purpose imaginable. To be ruled over by the King of the universe. Our purpose as the church of Jesus Christ is to pursue our joy, our happiness in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And by therefore doing, that's our purpose, to glorify God. How? The way Paul said it in chapter 4 so far, is by our daily walking, living our lives in a worthy manner of the Gospel. And we do this by daily submitting to the kingship, lordship, direction and commands of Jesus. And, According to our text, we also do it by using our spiritual gifts that Jesus has personally given to each one of us in order to help the local church grow. To grow into spiritual maturity. That's what Paul was saying. uh, So what I want to do first, before we go back into just the first part of the text, which is 7 to 10, is I want us to see the big picture of what Paul is unfolding. Because as we begin this morning with verse 7, that really is a whole part that goes all the way to verse 16. And so, coming into verse 7 remember we 've seen over the last few few weeks Jesus has just made it crystal clear that God is the one who has created the unity of the body through his son jesus christ that 's what verses one to six and particularly four to six are all about in verse three: pursue be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, and then four to six there 's only one body, one spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one, 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 one unity. And now, in verse 7, he tells us that there's a sense in the unified whole where each individual part, each individual person must work in order to attain the oneness. The unity of the body. You so just feel the flow. Verse 7. Unity, unity, unity. One, one, one. But, grace was given to each one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. And now, he flows down at verse 13. Until we all attain The unity of the faith, of the knowledge, of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And down into verse 16. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what Paul is saying here in the big picture that we'll be in for weeks is that there is a common denominator, a common hope that had been placed in the hearts of each and every individual who has truly been born again. He he called it, remember, we saw last week, the one hope of your calling it is what is that hope that the creator of the universe has said i am sharing my glory with you that christ may be glorified in us and we in him and the culmination of it is yet future in his second coming this Is what creates the unity of the Spirit. That's what verses 1 through 6 were about. Now he comes to verse 7 and he says, This unity is not uniformity. Everybody looks the same, everyone is the same. Bland. No, it's harmony. People singing. In harmony. But they're singing different parts. That's what Paul goes on to show. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us. According to the measure of Christ's gift. And so in verses 7 to 10. Paul focuses on the gift giver Christ as the conquering hero sovereign one over all things and he wants us to hear it he's the one that gave you that gift or those gifts then from verses 11 through 16 which happen to be in the Greek one long sentence he shifts away from the gifts given individually to each part of the body, and he shifts for a moment to the gifts of five groups of people that Jesus then gives to the church in order to cause each individual part to grow and cause each other to grow up from infancy into spiritual maturity. And that is shown by the congregations no longer being gullible to various kinds of false teaching. And a crucial aspect of that, according to Paul, is how he ends the section in verses 15 to 16. But rather, speaking the truth. In love. Pause for a moment. It is amazing, but then again not, because we're all human. So many struggle with putting those two things together. Speaking the truth in love. You can really care in love about a, a family member who is gay. And you can love the heck out of them by your deeds and your your feelings and your emotions and everything else and never waver on the truth. You can't live this out. I feel for your struggle. Or with truth in the body, for instance, as we saw last week, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, there are lots of people think, no, no, no. Not truth here. We're going to love the brother who is unrepentantly committing sexual immorality. And Paul thinks they're not loving him at all. Paul says, you have to do the truth. Don't let the church lie to the world about who Christ is by members continuing to be allowed to be members while living in unrepentant sin. To Paul, that's that's love. Jesus is a lover, the best lover, the, the one who loved more than any human being. Bring the children to me. Let me teach you. These are precious in God's sight. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Oh, how how I would just caught you like a hand. It's baby. But you, you would not. There's the truth. J- Jesus. What do you think about a few years ago when those fellow Jews were crushed to death by that tower? What do you make of that? And what about the Jews that were slaughtered in the temple? What do you make of that, Jesus? Here's the lover of souls. You don't think they were killed so tragically because they were worse sinners than you, do you? Better not, because I tell you, unless you repent of your sins, all of you will perish in such a way. Okay. None of that's in my notes. Let's go back. So, verse fifteen again. But rather, how how do we go about it? speaking the truth in love? We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head. That is, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's Paul's whole section will be in for a few weeks. Now this morning, we just want to grapple with the first part of that, verses 7-10. through 10. So again, verse 7 begins, "...but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift." Now, that but to each one It's directly linked to the unity he's been talking about in verses 1 to 6. Unity, yes, but to each one is given, which makes us different. see, The word but means Paul's going to now focus on the individual parts of the whole, of the unity of the body, and how they then together are to go about attaining that unity. So that means every one of you who is a member of the church. And so this is where you should perk up and say, okay, hmm, what is my role? What's my part? Now notice the words very slowly there in verse 7. Paul says it this way. Grace was given to each believer according to the measure I'm going to do it literally according to the measure of the gift of Christ or that Christ gave so notice grace is what's given that's what he calls it here and then he brings in the word gift that's measured out now, those words are important. So, what, you, you got a Bible, Bible here? So you don't even have to turn the page back. Okay? So in chapter 3, Paul's already used these terms. And listen closely. In chapter 3, verse 3, Paul said, You have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Which here... He means the gift of being an apostle and being a teacher, and he meant particularly here of the revelation given to him that he is to teach. Paul says that was God's grace given to me. Okay, got this? So for the way he's using grace does not mean the grace of Christ that saves or something like that. That's not what he means here. He means for God to say, here's a gift to be used, that's grace coming. So so he goes on in verses 7 to 8 in chapter 3. Of this gospel, I, Paul, was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so, y- yes, the, the Apostle Paul as a direct Apostle sent directly from Jesus Christ in the first century is historically unique. There are none of these anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. But now Paul, a few paragraphs later, says very clearly, Christ has given grace, the grace of ministry, gifting, we'll see, to each and every one who is a member of Christ's body. That grace is the power of, To operate in the measured out gift. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, according... How is it? It's given according to the measure... Here, I'm going to do it literally the way Paul wrote it. According to... The measure of the gift of Christ. So that measure of the gift, it means according to the proportion. Or to the limit of the gift. And then the phrase of Christ just means that's the one who measures out the proportions of the gift. Christ gives the gifts. That, that's what he's saying there. That the ascended Lord Jesus gives grace to each believer and He does it in, a, in proportions that are appropriate to each gift. So Paul's making clear that within the unity of the body of Christ, there in Ephesus, or Colossae, or First Baptist, or the Presbyterian church down the road, or the Pentecostal church down the road. He's saying that each member has a distinctive gift or giftings in order to be of service to the whole body so that together we mature in Christ. And the ability to perform that service or those services is because of the grace that has been given by Jesus. So, I just want to spend a couple, two minutes, just briefly, not all the text that Paul talks about gifts or in the New Testament, but just notice the language elsewhere about gifts given to each and every one who's a member of the body of Christ. In Romans twelve six to 8 Paul writes, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy... Well then, in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in His teaching, the one who exhorts in His exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Again, grace given makes us different. Use them in proportion. In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, he writes, And all these, referring to the gifts listed in chapter 12 before this, And all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as He, the Holy Spirit, will. Then, outside of Paul for a moment, Peter says this in 1 Peter 4, and and he is writing a universal letter to five provinces. It's going to mean hundreds of local churches, and he wants it spread out. So this is he saying, here's church life, and he writes this in 1 Peter 4, 10-11. As each person, as each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied, manifold grace. Whoever speaks, got speaking gifts, do so as one who speaks the oracles of God. You got service gifts, whoever serves, then do so as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Okay, So now Paul then says, in our passage in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The Sovereign Lord Jesus measures out the portions of the gifts. And in all these writings it's assumed each so let me just say this point before we move on through the text. Know your gifts. Come to know them. Know what comes easy to you and you're, you're good at. Be thankful for it. Appreciate it. Know your gifts so that you can bless others in the local. Now, let me just say this. Do not... Repeat it. Do not focus on your non-gifts. By that, I don't mean not wanting to get better in all kinds of areas. That's not what I mean. Sometimes because things come so naturally, we don't think it's a gift at all. It's just easy for me. And you're frustrated other people can't do what you do. And so we focus on what we're not good at. And we see other people good at it. And we get jealous. And we get envious. And we get discouraged. Don't be like the bald guy. Because I don't do this. Who's always looking around at other guys with full heads of hair. That's what I mean by don't focus on your non See, if I did that, I would crawl into a hole and cry if I just focused on all the gifts, all the abilities, all the dispositions and bents that are right here in this congregation. Woe is me. And, And as a pastor in our day and age with the Internet, if I focused on other uh, ministry leaders and preachers, teachers and, and, and just compared all the time with their giftings, of organization, everything else. And I, I, would just, I would have quit a long time ago. And actually, I'm persuaded why thousands of professional pastors quit the ministry for good, a year, thousands of just in this country. It's one of the main reasons. It can be so discouraging. Everyone tells you, you ought to be able to do it this way. That guy does it. And he's got a seminar. Here's, go, go to the seminar, pay your money, go do it. He's going to teach you how to do it. And he comes home and they try it. It doesn't work for them. It's not them. Let, let, let me just, okay, let me use an example. I can't spell my wife's a really good speller some of you are really good spellers and some of you aren't and, I've, and some of you know I've asked this question for, of good spellers do you see that word like on a board in your mind and you just read off the letters and the answer keeps coming back to those who spell really well they haven't heard a word in a year you give them the word they spell it and the answer to me yes they don't think they have a gift they, they can't understand in general unless I teach them other people don't have that ability that you have like that. We don't see the word in our mind like on a board and read it. So don't go hold a seminar about how everyone can do what I do. They can't. We might be able to improve some basic skills of spelling, but we don't have that Look, I can't sing. I can't play a musical instrument. I am not good at meeting people for the first time and doing healthy small talk that causes them to feel almost immediately and wonderfully comfortable around me. I know some of you do. And I envy it. I hope in non-sinful way. But I know that's a gift. Love it. Use it. I don't have it. I want to be better at that, but I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Organization for me, administration. We all got to do parts of these things in life. I have to do them, but not a strong point. Scheming and planning to be here's a new term of the church world an attractional pastoral leader. That's an impossibility. To be an entrepreneur type and run the business of the church and watch it grow like your local store. Uh, I would have quit a long time ago. Most of you know that. I wrote a book saying that's why when we found this church, don't don't expect any of that. I won't do it because I won't last eight months if I try. Know your gifts so you don't go bawling your head off, crying boo-hoo, woe is me every night. But instead, this is what I say to you then. Come with me every day in your life and you get before the Father day after day together and thank Him for that little gift or the three gifts that you know you have and say, okay, that's who I am. That's what you call me to do. Help me today. Grow in those. Help me develop them. Help me do them well. Help me be faithful to use them to bless other people. Now, we'll come more to the interaction and interplay of human beings in the body of Christ in the local church in the weeks to come, as Paul will do. But at this point, Paul himself pulls back now. From that, just set it, gives gifts, and now he wants to focus on or to drive home this fact. That The gift giver is sovereign. All powerful. That's where he's going. And that's what he does here in verses 8, 9, and 10. Okay? In other words, what I mean is this. If you look at your text, Paul could have gone from verse 7 to verse 11 without missing a beat. So let's just read it that way and feel it. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. But He didn't do that. He stopped on purpose in order to bring in Psalm 68 verse 18. In order to support His claim that Christ gives gifts... And the power to operate in them because He is the all-powerful One. So read verses 7 and 8 together. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says in Psalm 68, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, if you were to turn over to Psalm 68, verse 18, you would immediately notice a problem. Paul changed the word, and he received gifts, to he gave gifts. And that's how the Hebrew reads. And that's how the Septuagint, the Greek translation of it, which was done about 180, 90 years before Paul wrote. Paul knew the Septuagint. He had it with him all the time. And it also reads, received gifts. And he writes, gave gifts. In the original context of Psalm 68, verse 18, it's about God having triumphed and now ascending to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion. Because He's delivered His people. And He's receiving gifts or the plunder of the conquered enemy. Okay? And then Paul grabs it. He sees it. And he sees a parallel of that conquering and ascending up to Mount Zion. He sees the parallel of Christ ascending to heaven. Ascending to the Father, with a host of captives whom he led captive. Now, what does that mean? Well, it either means demonic forces who were placed in subjection under his feet, that Paul's already said very clearly in chapter 1 of Ephesians. Or, he means... Believers who used to be His enemy, but they've been brought to happy submission at the cross. And He leads them in His train of triumph. It's either one. Now, here's the thing though, back to why did He change received to gave. I can give a two-hour lecture right now, explaining the different viewpoints in full and I'm not going to do it. And I did spend, I don't say waste, <laughs> but I did spend at least five hours just reading the different opinions on that issue and how to solve it. So I'm just going to try and take a couple minutes to just give you the gist without any of the arguments of the basic possibilities. What's happening here? How did he change and why did he change the word received to gave. Well, first there is well, Paul deliberately changed received to gave because he wanted to make his theological point. And he is an apostle. He has the a unique authority of an apostle and he knew that Psalm 68 18 is a messianic Psalm. And he saw that there and therefore he brings out its deeper meaning second view, which I think is a little far-fetched, but I could make it make a lot of sense to you if I were to try to do that, but I'm not going to do that. But that is to see Psalm 68, verse 18, alluding to Numbers, chapter 8, verse 6, where it says, take the Levites from among the people and sanctify them, cleanse them. And then God gives the tribe of Levi back to the congregation as gifts to serve in the temple. There are arguments for that. I can take the time. That's the second view. Third is this is true. In the first century, I'm not saying this is why Paul did it, but this part is a truism. There were, in Judaism in the first century, there's all kinds of oral tradition, the halakha and all the laws, and then there were oral traditions of paraphrases of the scripture, okay? And it's a very oral society, which later in the second century and on, those oral traditions finally got written down, Okay? And that's how we know for sure now that there is an oral tradition of of a paraphrase of Psalm 68, 18 that actually says, and he gave gifts not received. Who's following me? Let me see a hand. Goodness. Alright. And not okay. Well, there's I can give you more. I'm not gonna do it. But finally, here's the last view Is that look. When a king conquers the enemy and receives plunder, they plunder, right? They get all the stuff. It's theirs now. We have conquered you and subjugated you. What does a king do? Well, he gives it away to his people. That's what he does. And so the argument goes. Logically, giving is implied in the receiving of the plunder in Psalm 68, 18. And Paul is just making that part of it explicit by paraphrasing it. And he gave gifts to men. Alright, we're done with that. Back to what we know for sure here now. Paul's point in using it is clear. Jesus gives gifts to His people. And His main emphasis now in using this psalm is to point out the sovereign authority of Jesus who gives the gifts over all things. So let's read now as He starts to interpret a word for us, right? Verses 9 and 10. So in the psalm, He ascended insane. He ascended, what does it mean? But that He had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. So, Paul's reasoning, it's right there on the surface is if Christ ascended then he must have first descended but what does he mean let me again the literal translation like the NIV has or the New King James is he descended into the lower parts of the earth. Okay, Not only that, I don't know which version you have, but when the ESV first came out in 2001, that's exactly how they translated it. He descended into the lower parts of the earth. In the second edition, ten years after that, in 2011, They decided, we really understand Paul to mean this, and so we're going to make it crystal clear. And they translated it. How? Into the lower regions, comma, the earth. Which means, the lower regions. In other words, the earth. Okay? Are you following me? Okay. Now, there are three main views on what does he mean here when Christ descended to the lower parts of the earth the first is that jesus descended into hades the place of the departed dead and many 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 christians have held this view for centuries the view that jesus went into this nether world of departed dead spirits it takes the words lower parts of the earth, to mean in the earth, or under the earth, or the underworld, the way that the ancients would talk about that idea of Hades. And so Jesus, between His burial and His resurrection, where did He go? He went into Hades, the place of departed spirits. And then all kinds of ideas. why might he do that? To preach the gospel, to Old Testament saints so they can become Christians, or to give the dead a chance to hear the gospel, or to rescue believers who have died before Jesus went there, and they're like in a holding cell, like Abraham's bosom, and released them and brought them ascending up to the Father, that kind of thing. There's a first view. Second view is rather new over the last few decades, and it's growing more and more in uh, biblical interpreters that, 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 that see Christ descending to refer to the day of Pentecost, which would mean they're saying when he ascended, what does it mean? But he also descended, they're saying the ascension came first, and then after he ascended to the Father, Then he descended on Pentecost in the Spirit and gave gifts. Okay. The third view is what I'm convinced of. Is that Jesus, I mean, Paul here is referring to Jesus' incarnation. He's referring to Jesus becoming a human being and his death, like Philippians 2, in the form of God, did not regard it. Equality quality have got a thing to be grasped, but became human in order to suffer and to die okay, before he was exalted in the ascension. So, in other words, I think, and I think very strongly that Paul's only point here is that the highly exalted one, the Son of God, He's the one who descended and became a human being and suffered and died and rose. And that same One is the One who ascended to the right hand of the Father with all authority and power under Him. He is in absolute sovereign control. He who descended, He's the One who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. And this language we see throughout the Gospel of John Just a taste here. Jesus in John 3 says it this way, No one has ascended into heaven except He who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Or in John 6, He says, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world And he goes on to say, This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down or descended from heaven. Or, he says, Then what if you were to see the Son of Man Himself, Jesus? What if you were to see Me ascending to where I was before? My descent. Okay, got it? All right. In other words, so Paul, he didn't have in mind here a realm beneath the earth or under the earth or in the earth. Okay, like the lower parts of the earth. What he means by the lower parts, if you just give it very literally, of the earth, so I'm going to do this for, I'm just doing it because it's fun. And you got some Greek students in here. Of the earth is a genitive. And I talked to Dana last week. How many uses of the genitive? Okay. Okay. Of the earth, is it possessive? Is it location? Okay, or how do you understand it? Well, I think it's clearly appositional or apexegetical. I didn't make up the term, so I'm sorry. But all that means is simply this. That the lower parts of the earth means the lower parts. In other words, the earth. The earth is referring, saying a different way, of what lower parts meant. And that's how the ESV 2011 edition translates it. It's how the NIV translates it. That's their understanding of how of the earth is being used. And I think they're correct. Like if I were to say the the freedom of liberty... What do I mean? Okay, there, the way I just use that, I don't mean that liberty is a part of freedom. It's not how I mean it. I mean liberty of freedom. I mean the liberty which is equal to freedom. So Paul is saying Jesus, he descended. He descended way down here, really low to the earth, in other words. That's what he's saying. Now why did he do it? Verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens in order that he might fill all things. That's why. What's that mean? Means what he said earlier. Paul's pointing us back to what he said in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 20 to 23, that he's filling all things. When he said this, and God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and then Christ ascended. But he says it this way. When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him, that human being, at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Now listen. And then He put all things under His feet and gave Him, Christ, the Ascended One, to be the Head over all things to the church, which is His body. The fullness of Him who fills all in all. So, Paul says that here. Why? In order to fill all in all, it refers to His sovereign rule over all things. Matthew 28, right? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And now Paul is saying, Jesus is presently, and it's true today, exercising His sovereign rule over the church by His presence in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit operates within each and every one of us. Every part in order to fill all things, to help the body develop, grow up spiritually into maturity that's in Christ. And that's why Jesus, the Ascended One, gave you gifts. That's His So, as we reflect upon what we have heard and seen here, it should cause each and every one of us to ask ourselves, am I living the purpose-driven life that Jesus laid out for me? Or another way to... To, to ask this is Am I consciously, purposefully, daily living under Christ's sovereign rule by being obedient? By living in repentance when I sin, turning again and again when I'm not? Am I actively moving to know Him better and more and more through His written Word and worship in the community. So, in other words, are you seeking to have your worldview come in line with Biblical theology and Biblical Ethics on how you live. That's exactly where Paul is going. Because the first thing he says after this large section is verse 17. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer live your lives as unbelievers in the futility of their minds. And this means we must be committed to the local church. Because that is the place where we seek to discover the gifts that Jesus has given to us to be used for the benefit of other members of our local churches. It is through the church in its local expression, that Christ fills all in all. God put everything under Jesus' feet. And then He gave Jesus to be the head over everything to The church, which is His body. The fullness of Him. The One who is filling all in all. If all a person does is attend a weekly church service, but does it ever have communion with the body, by relationally getting into the lives of other fellow members, then they are not using their gifts to serve others. And they are thus not fulfilling Christ's purpose for their lives. And one other thing. When Paul quotes this song. That means there's a warfare aspect to it that he has in his mind. When he quotes, when he ascended on high, he led hosts of captives and he gave gifts to men. He conquered. And his giving of the gifts are like weapons for other fellow souls. Why would you not use them to save their lives? They are weapons against evil, unseen, spiritual powers of deception. They lead astray in thinking and in living that we're all, as sinners, vulnerable. And you know where Paul does go. You know Ephesians 6. Take up the whole armor of God. He's got a war mentality. Now, if you ever read Ephesians 6 as, oh yeah, all the Christians are to take the Bible and go home. And Jesus is just speaking to me. And then, oh, I guess He's just speaking to you over there. You totally missed the New Testament. It's not what he has in mind. Yes, we do s- sleep in a bed alone over the spouse. We have prayer. We pray when no one else is around. We do that. But he sees the communal life as a whole as we battle. And we will see this in the weeks to come, as we go down through this text, that on a daily basis we're in a warfare. How? By being in the lives of one another to do the work of ministry, of serving for the growth and the health of the body. The way he says it, a few verses later, is this. In order to equip The saints, that means each and every member of the body. What for? For the work of ministry. Which is that? It's for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. And lastly, he ascended, not just physical mountain Zion conquering Jerusalem, but He ascended as King of all the universe with all authority and power given to him, And therefore, as we feel what Paul is saying and the demand upon our lives, you should know this first and foremost. We will win. He's conquered. And you've got to know it. Because if you follow a biblical pattern of Christianity, you're going to have battles and you will feel in your humanity many many reasons to grow weary and quit they don't recognize my gift they don't praise me enough they really hurt me by neglect or because they really sinned against you and hurt you that's why I don't go back to church I've been hurt okay. let me just use the words of the apostle Paul know the gospel then if you struggle with that and grow up and quit being so self-centered if you're a believer you deserve hell Jesus descended to die and to take the wrath of God from you. And he has ascended on high. And if you're a believer, he had grabbed you. You're his. Expect pain, expect imperfections in others. And just know He's coming back and in the end, you're going to win and you're called to use your gifts to bless others and to help them along the way in the local bodies of Christ. Just remember the words then, because He's the conquering King as we walk this walk of life. Remember Paul's words at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father. to work a sense of urgency in us frail, desperate needy, dependent children of yours To, to know our gifts to want to be used and to use them so many of them are not even recognized as gifts but oh. On that day you will bring to light all things so let us be satisfied in the huge gifts and the tiny gifts the obscure gifts and the public gifts that you've given to any because you our treasure. And so it is in you, by your Spirit, daily, that we seek to depend to the glory of our great Savior, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Amen.